Um, with me this time is, again, is Neil Young, the Managing Director of Elixir Energy, an Australian um, oil and gas play with uh, assets in Mongolia. Neil, how are you? I'm I'm very good, Merlin. Thanks for inviting me again. And, and just to add, we also have assets in Australia where we've been, uh, been pursuing a fabulous program recently with, with lots more to come shortly. But uh, I won't bore the audience with that, and we can we can turn to macro issues. Well, um, before we do that, I mean, because I, of, of course I looked at your Daydream um, 2 well, which you drilled in Australia kind of at the end of last year, and it, and it, it looks as if you hit over 600 metres of um, net pay, and it all looks really exciting. But then I looked at your share price, and the share price is um, barely moved. It's kind of it's still kind of um, bubbling along the bottom. And I just wanted to ask whether that was a function of kind of a general dislike of oil and gas companies in the in the sector or the fact that the, the market is not excited about oil and gas. Is it, it, I just wondered if you could put your finger on it or kind of work out why why you haven't had the price response that something like your successful well might have stimulated. I think it's a general dislike for resource stocks rather than oil and gas stocks just now. Mm. In Australia in particular, in recent years, there's been the fabulous performance of battery metal stocks and really lithium being a primary one. Um, but the, the nickel price fall and, and, and the lithium price fall have meant that the stock prices of many, many companies has fallen by significant amounts. And um, that has obviously affected confidence. It's also affected the uh, accessibility of funding and for the overall sector and, and, and people's moods uh, are negative. What I find for stocks like us, which are fairly liquid, is that good news isn't a buying queue, it can often be a selling queue because people are stuck in other stocks that don't have liquidity. They they might need some money to um, buy the Christmas presents or, or, or go on holiday and uh, the liquid stocks tend to be a, a bit of a piggy bank. Um, so that is a better position than being the illiquid stocks because they are in a position that if they need money, they probably can't get it. Um, and companies like us are in a position that when the wind turns even slightly, liquidity will be rewarded. And uh, obviously, we, we look forward to that. But we are in a bit of a malaise just now for resource stocks generally. And, and I assume you're seeing that in London and Canada as well. But certainly, that I don't look at those closely. But that that's my impression in Australia. Yes, I, I think in this country, in the UK, there's a kind of a, a special um, distaste for oil and gas stocks. I think it's a... Um, it's a small uh, portion of the investment uh, community that's kind of open-minded about um, investing into oil and gas. Uh, so I think I was, that's where I was, I was leading, you know, just seeing whether the um, uh, the trends were similar in Australia or not. Um, when I look at nickel and um, lithium uh, as as markets, I mean, of course, nickel, you've got this extraordinary Change, step change in the ability of the Chinese um, companies to do high pressure acid leaching in Indonesia, which is kind of strip mining Indonesia and kind of putting their nickel market into oversupply. And lithium is an incredibly immature industry. So there's lithium sticking out of the ground all over the place, you know, whether it's in Australia or Brazil, Canada, North America, wh wherever. Once, once um, people put their mind to producing uh, lithium, there's certainly no shortage of it. Um, sitting close to surface, so it's just a logistics thing. But um, it's so easy to put all commodities into the same basket, and um, the oil 
market is such an extraordinary um it's such an extraordinary industry because it's so huge and the the americans have been just fantastic at um increasing their production but a lot of these assets are tired and the money's not going into exploration and um perhaps we can unpack a few of those things and um, but you've just been in the states haven't you yeah I, I was there for two weeks one week in houston they have an annual conference called nape which is all about sort of deal making and uh from Elixir's point of view, we were talking to a few potential partners to our, our Queensland play. Um, as you say, the American oil and gas market is so dynamic, so entrepreneurial. And, and I mean, they've, they've got great geology, we know, but they've been producing for you know, 170 years and uh, still find ways to increase production. Uh, I mean, U.S. oil production's never been higher, and they felt that it peaked in 1970, and now, now we are 54 years on. I mean, gas production is incredible. That has suppressed prices recently. U.S. Henry Hub is just in the absolute toilet of just a little bit above a dollar fifty, um, and that's really a function of a number of things. Of which one of which is U.S. dynamism. Um, there's some other political and, and market factors as well, and I'm sure sure will correct in due course. Um, when you say it's in the toilet, I mean uh, it's it's at about one dollar fifty. Is that a bad thing? Doesn't that stimulate investment into the states? Doesn't that stimulate? Doesn't manuf- manufacturing and industry go where energy prices are low? Um, they they do, and it's it's logical for you know if you're a fertilizer plant or someone who needs methane as a feedstock to to go to the U.S. But I suppose what it has stimulated are a lot of LNG plants to be built, largely on on the Gulf of Mexico coast, some on the East Coast, uh, but interestingly, none on the West Coast, because basically you can't do anything in in California and and its northern neighbors. But interestingly, there are LNG plants being built on the West Coast of Mexico. um, And my view is that when they come online and they're well positioned to supply Asian markets because they avoided Panama Canal, et cetera, that that will that will take a lot of pressure off U.S. gas prices down. And the, the current uh, Biden administration pause on approving new LNG plants in the Gulf of Mexico doesn't apply in, uh, in Mexico itself. And so they can take a lot of pipeline gas, in particular from West Texas. And it's really West Texas associated gas from the Permian Basin oil production, which is really a waste product. It's dumped into the gas market and suppressed prices. But once that's taken away, liquefied and shipped to Asia, then then that should be a significant uh, uh, foot off the pedal. And you know, dollar fifty is probably it's not going to go to Australian prices, but it might go to you know, two dollars fifty or something. That that will sustain U.S. gas producers who are incredibly efficient at, for instance, taking dry gas out of out of the Marcellus at very very low prices. Uh, interesting and. Um, is the pipeline network already there to go from West Texas to the West Coast of Mexico? So there's a lot of gas gets shipped to Mexico anyway from Texas. And to take it to, to Baja California is not, not a lot of new pipeline builds, re- really. Uh, building pipelines in Mexico and Texas is somewhat easier than it is in, say, Canada uh, for you know, political and labor costs and, and, and other reasons. And so it's really when the liquefaction plants got built. I and mean, I can remember when these projects were first mooted and everyone's scoffing that it never happened, but location is is trumping everything there as as it often does. And you're saying that they can't get built in California or Oregon or um, Washington State because of... Yeah, well, I've, I've never even heard of someone proposing the LNG plant in California because you just can't do anything. Uh, I mean, as, as you, you might know, there was some 
I mean, California has been a prolific oil producer onshore, even offshore, years and years ago. But I think in the Nixon administration or something like that, there was a spill, and then nothing was ever allowed to be done again. Uh, these states are all rich. The coastlines are all occupied by very rich people. And uh, it's a pretty much iron law that oil and gas developments don't happen where there are rich people whose views might get spoiled. Um, uh, so... Uh, I mean, West Coast uh, Canada, you know, the Shell are nearly finished an LNG project there. But at one stage, there were at least half a dozen other LNG projects proposed for West Canada. There's a lot of cheap gas in Canada, but equally, there's a lot of expensive labor uh, and uh, you know, native issues and engineering issues. In effect, taking taking pipelines over the Rockies um, uh, to to the coastal provinces. Um, um, and um, when you're in the states, when you're in Houston in that conference. Um, uh, what was the what was the mood like? What were the um, what were the people like? You know, um, kind of give, give I mean, a bit of color on that, question. please. I mean, the people are 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 very entrepreneurial. I mean, what what you see in America, you don't see in many other countries. Is people can be second, third, fourth generation oil and gas people. Um, given the amount of capital and the amount of dollars involved, there's not a lot of people in this industry. And uh, one thing that that is apparent is although U.S. oil and gas production's never been higher. The industry feels a bit old in terms of its personnel, and it, it feels a bit uh, still old-fashioned in terms of being, you know, basically people like me, old white men, rather than than you, you step out the doors and into Houston and it's an incredibly diverse and interesting place, but inside the conference hall, it's a bit more traditional America, and it feels old. Uh, and then even meeting investors on the East Coast, those investors who are interested in oil and gas and and you said in the UK, that's not everyone. They tended to be, um, again, fitting that sort of demographic. Um, that's, I, I think it's a, I think it's a function of the, um, of the education that we've had in the last thirty years. That there's been this basic drumbeat that oil and gas is bad, and that batteries are good. And I think that when you, presumably, when you go to um, university and you're um, given choices. Um, or in a career, very, very few people would want to go into something that's inverted commas bad. And um, I know for a fact that in kind of some of the universities in the UK, they're doing everything to kind of expunge the words um, oil and gas or petroleum based. You know, they have to, it's now, I think they call it um, uh, fluid fluid dynamic studies or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that is true. I suppose... That- from time to time, the industry hasn't helped, though, because in the last 20 years, there's been three oil price falls, and big companies go and fire a lot of people, and um, uh, that you know, that they could have been better at sustaining people's careers, because people who are fired often leave the industry for good, um, and then you have this sort of winnowing effect. But you're, 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 you're right in terms of people don't want to realize, recognize the reality that demand for oil and gas has never been higher. Now, you know, there are certainly views that it will decline, but any decline in oil will be gradual, and most people's views are that demand for gas will increase for decades to come. And you know that's, the, the energy transition is hard. I mean, these are energy-dense, useful products. There's a massive multi-trillion dollars of sunk capital involved in producing. Attempt by regulators and politicians will fix the problem by suppressing supply. Supply is not the problem, it's demand. But no one wants to suppress demand because, you know, demand are people who vote. Uh, and so 
that those two things don't don't square, but they will have to square in due course. And the oil price is um, relatively steady, kind of um, the high seventies. Um, it feels as if it's kind of as as if it's very natural, as if there's no stress in the system. It just feels that that the oil will keep flowing no matter what, and that we don't need really need to plan ahead for the future because it's always going to be fine. But um, um, it probably isn't that straightforward, is it? There's probably there is probably scope for a shock and um, uh, declines in supply going forward. I mean, absolutely. As 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 most people in this sector know, and was observed by the CEO of, of Occidental recently, very pertinently, the discoveries haven't you know matched demand uh, uh, for many many years. Now there have been some great discoveries, in like Guyana, for example. Um, but they they don't you know, replace the the hundred million barrels uh, a, a day that, that that are consumed just now. Um, so the market does feel balanced, and that's even with OPEC taking taking barrels off the table. I think in the short term, the the Red Sea um, uh, in effect choke point has illustrated that choke points generally can uh, are real, not just uh, you know theoretical. Now the, the Red Sea hasn't really affected oil prices much. I think probably the, the Panama Canal and the the droughts there have affected LNG shipping costs probably more than the Houthis have affected oil prices uh, in the Red Sea. But what this illustrates is that uh, if, for instance, the Middle Eastern war escalated and Iran got involved directly rather than through proxies, then uh, and you started to affect um, the, the the Gulf, then oil prices could double or treble easily. Um, I don't think the SBR in the States has been, uh, you know, a lot of oil was taken out of that to suppress prices and that oil, you know, oil hasn't got back in to where it needs to be. And in terms of outside China, there's not a lot of physical, you know, uh, re- strategic reserves like that. Uh, and, and the Chinese can, I, can, I, can I just kind of go back? You said oil and prices could conceivably double or triple. I mean, that's a huge leap upwards. I mean, $160 a barrel, 240 you think you that's, know, that's, well, that's I think conceivable? That the amount of oil that comes out of Saudi and goes to the Gulf is uh, is sufficiently large for that to um, uh, be um, uh, you know, a possible outcome if, if a war erupted in the Gulf, which, as I say, Iran has demonstrated hostility and, and arguably you know, in, engendered the current situation in Gaza. And uh, you know things could escalate and get out of hand and, and have those sorts of consequences. Now that, those sorts of spikes would 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 have a, a rapid effect on economic activity, and then it, they tend to self-correct through through a recession. You know that's just what what happens when when we've seen that that sort of spiking in the 70s and and, and in the first you know um, and, well the Iran Revolution in 1979-80. Yeah. I mean, the, the the oil price did go from whatever it was, two dollars to eight dollars, but that was off a much lower base. But perhaps, um, mm. yeah. Well, there we go. I mean, that would it, it led to the first uh, real efficiency drive, didn't it? In the, I mean, suddenly cars and everything got redesigned to be more efficient and more fuel efficient. Um, and, yeah, and that's well, a, you that's think a, of us when America passed a fifty-five mile per hour speed limit. Can you imagine Congress agreeing on that just now? <laughs> no yeah. way. And, um, but yeah, I mean, efficiency would would respond to that, and then you, the cycle, you know, as we discussed in the last chat, Jevons paradox w- would come back, and you'd find more uses for 
for, for your cheap energy. And um, what about Russia at the moment? Presumably their production hasn't fallen off at all, but they're just selling it east. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously selling it to the Indians and the Chinese primarily, uh, who are you know, getting discounts and, and, and liking that accordingly. Um, I think in, in terms of Russian gas, the, the gas that went to Europe for, for many, many decades um, is, is not going to go to Europe probably ever. Um, and the Paris-Siberia 2 project to instead take that all the way from West Siberia to China is going nowhere either. It's, it's enormously expensive. And the Chinese, are, are, although they're you know, political allies, are not economically stupid. And, and would only if Russia's desperate, they, they will only pay a low price. And, and, and uh, that's not palatable to the Russians. In terms of Russian LNG, the, the Arctic LNG expansion has been retarded by, by sanctions. Um, but not not stopped, and and generally people will find a way around those sorts of sanctions. But in terms of new LNG growth in Russia, that's uh, um, you know a ways away. I mean, I can't see on you know Sakhalin really developing more than it already has. And then in terms of taking taking gas uh, out of uh, out of Western Russia, that's that that's hard. You need, you need to build pipelines and really political projects, not economic ones. But effectively, okay, the growth has come out of the LNG in Russia. But the 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 oil molecules are still getting into the kind of the global bathtub. Yes, yeah. I, don't, I mean, I think sanctions haven't really changed volumes. They've just changed pricing outcomes. For Russia gets less, and India and China get good deals. Yeah, <laughs> uh, interesting. Good. And um, you talk about kind of choke points. Um, and as you said, Vicky Holler, um, CEO of Occidental, was talking about the the lack of discoveries going forward. So, um, do you are you bullish on the oil price? Okay, there's risk to the upside through through the choke point or kind of um, oil shocks. But mm-hmm. do you feel that this level of seventy to eighty dollars can be maintained for a long time? Are we looking kind of one or two years at this level? I mean, I, I know it's dangerous and you don't have a crystal ball. Yeah, but um, just in terms of the kind of the forces that are at play, because there is to a degree economic weakness out there. It's not we're not in the kind of gangbuster territory with all countries going going for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean there's there's a bit of a mixture. I think the American economy is just absolutely booming. Um and so that's uh, led to a sort of pause on the expectation of reduction of interest rates. Uh on the other hand, the Chinese economy is not booming and uh, leadership's more focused on probably geopolitics rather than than economic growth. Uh, and then Demographics are the, the most powerful, but long-term force uh, in economics and politics are are irredeemably getting worse there. Uh, I think India is still still growing, uh, you know, economy and now the world's probably in, in top five, I think. And uh, when you've got that population size and growing at seven percent a year, that's going to you know, be a big call on 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 oil demand and just you know, grow exponentially and and hopefully offset the the, the economic weakness in China. Um, I mean, Europe is, you know, it's obviously a lovely place to live, and I've lived there, but you know, it's not, not, not the big uh, factor that it was. I mean, Africa, uh, I mean, even with its problems, you know, still got population growth and economic growth, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll call on oil as well. So you combine that with the um, lack of of new supply and then depletion. I mean, you think of depletion in, in conventional fields as, you know, let's say four or five percent a year. But in the U.S. shale field, it's you know probably two or three times that, um, and a lot of the new growth in the last ten years has come from that incredible U.S. dynamism. But 
there is a lot of sort of running to stand still there, and and uh, you know, these things you know can't go on forever, and uh, unless you know EV take up is much higher and and replacements for oil are found more quickly than they have been, then the the pressures would suggest that in the medium term, however long that is, that that oil prices you know could well rise. Well, there we go. Um, it, obviously, it doesn't. Um... Uh, shock me to hear an oil man saying that the fundamentals for the oil industry are <laughs> are positive, um, but I've certainly, um, you know, I look at the I look at the key commodities that are essential to our modern life, and um, uh, and I'm I'm firmly behind oil, oil and gas, and um, copper, and to a degree gold as well. I um, I see that as a um, a real store of value. But anyway, just one thing going back to the. Um, to the U.S. shales, I heard a podcast uh, talking about the the propants and the way that they had changed over time from importing these ceramic um, um, ceramic beads, these very sophisticated propants, and then they found actually with time that they could um, use just kind of um, sand that they could kind of dig up locally, and so the the whole cost uh, structure of the tight oil and gas industry in the US has changed because they're not bringing in these um, problems from large distances. I just wondered, because you're effectively looking at a tight um, oil and gas play, um, coal bed methane in um, a daydream in Australia, are you going to go be able to go um, take in these kind of these new US um, methods and just go straight in with a um, like a local sand. I mean, there's probably no shortage of sand in Australia. I think in time, yes. I mean, what we're about to stimulate our our will, and we have ordered ceramic propens from China, and what are called micro propens, also made from ceramics from from the states. Um, uh, that's because we need this well to work, and the the, the cost of the um, the the propens in that instance is is really not as important as getting a positive outcome. Um, now, propants that are made from ceramics are expensive, like $1,000 a ton or something like that. Then you've got the cost of shipping them halfway around the world. But as you get into a development stage where clearly the Ameri- Americas already are at, you've, you've got to face economic questions of, okay, well, what extra productivity do I get by having higher cost propants versus you know getting a slightly lower outcome but much cheaper propants? And they've clearly got to the point that they've traded off quality for price and we've even seen in the transition going from ceramics to to very high quality sands that were shipped halfway across america to then going hey now there's plenty of sand next door it's not as good quality but we we avoid those shipping costs so it's it's a, a function of economics and and a demonstration of of the america's can-do spirit that uh, is so admirable and i think in in our play in queensland you know, you know knock on wood you know when it works that we will see Province replaced by local sands, and what that that also does, it reinforces to people that this industry provides benefits um, that cascade throughout the local economy. Um, and so you you come into Texas, and everyone loves oil and gas because everyone benefits from it. And what we 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 certainly see is the political benefit of spending money locally uh, uh, when it makes sense, and typically it does make sense because the logistic costs become a large part um, of, of these things, particularly you know, some of these fracks in the States, you, you're putting tens of thousands of tons in a single well. So you know, it's, it's a lot, a lot of propant. Um, so 
I, I think great analog in the States and one that we would like to see replicated. And in a success case, we will see replicated uh, in our you know, extensive, unconventional, deep, tight gas play in Queensland. Well, Neil, thank you very much. It's been a, a, a fascinating um, romp around the world of oil and gas, um, uh, LNG and propants and uh, uh, choke points and risk. Um, thank you very much, and I look forward to another, um, catching up with you in a few months' time. Thanks also, Merlin, and uh, yeah, no, no, great to catch up and look forward to doing so soon.